Hebrews chapter 7, I'll begin reading in verse 11, and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. Let us hear now God's word. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We'll end our reading of God's word there. Friends, I can recall an occasion... Uh, quite a few years ago in my life when I was sitting uh, 
sitting in a circle with a group of people. We were involved in some pretty serious discussion that evening. And at one point, all eyes uh, turned on me as a question from the group was, uh, was put to me, had come my way. All eyes turned on me. And as I prepared to respond, I took probably a deep breath to collect my thoughts, to collect myself. Then before I knew it, I was flat on my back, facing the ceiling. You see, the chair that I had been sitting in had completely fallen apart. No exaggeration. No exaggeration. And I was left looking rather like a fool. We laugh at my embarrassing, it's okay, you can laugh. We laugh at my embarrassing moment. However, friends, my embarrassing moment reminds me of something else. Something that is not so funny. What is that? It is this. There are countless people in this world, and we cannot assume that that excludes the group here today. Countless people sitting on chairs, perhaps comfortably so, that are about to collapse. Might not be today, might not be tomorrow, but it is coming. And as long as you stay on that chair, there's nothing you can do to stop it from collapsing. What am I talking about? And of course, this chair that I'm talking about is not a physical chair, as was the case in my embarrassing moment. Not a literal chair that you physically sit on. It's a figurative chair. The chair that represents whatever you are resting on today to bear you up in this life. You see, we're all resting on something. We're all trusting in something to hold us up. Someone or something in this life to support us. Might be religion, might be philosophy, might be politics, might be any other ism or ideology, it might be just yourself. But friends, the Bible is clear. If that chair you're sitting on is not Jesus Christ, it's an idol. And it's going to collapse. Might not be today, might not be tomorrow, but it's going to collapse. If you're resting in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. On Christ, 
the solid rock I stand. As the old hymn eloquently puts it on Christ, the solid rock I stand. No other, all, all other ground is sinking sand. You see, we need to often, even as the people of God, be reminded that our ultimate problem in life is not the pandemic. It's not even the uh, discussions that have sprouted up around the past, serious or important as they may be and have their place. Friends, our ultimate problem, my ultimate problem is sin. Pandemic or no pandemic. And friends, there's only one remedy to that human problem of sin. And the glory of the gospel to the praise of his glorious grace is that God himself has given us the remedy. Free of charge, no strings attached. He's given us his own chair to sit on. To rest on. To trust in. To be comfortable in. As he brings us through this fallen world. Dealing with our enemies. And his enemies. And those enemies, yes, they are outside of us, but you know what? They're also inside. Only Jesus Christ can deal with our sin. And as we turn our attention to our passage in Hebrews this morning, I want us to carry the chair metaphor, if I can put it that way, forward. And I want us to see that this chair has four sturdy legs. That it's sitting upon four pillars, we can say, upon which the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ rests. There is, in the first place, the passing away of the old order. The passing away of the Levitical priesthood. There is a change in the priesthood, the writer says, verse 12. But what is this change in the priesthood and why is it important? Why has it come about? Why does it matter to us? It matters a great deal. Well, to understand what the writer is saying, we need to turn back to the Old Testament as we did earlier today, where the priesthood itself was established, inaugurated, given life, as it were, uh, under Moses. And 
And we did that. And we read from Leviticus 8. And we saw that God had instituted the priesthood so that His sinful people could have access to their holy God. Their sin inherited in Adam had come between them and their God. And God provided the priesthood that they may draw near. As sinners. But we saw that they could not simply draw near as priests with beautiful robes and ephods and and turbans on. They, They needed blood. The shedding of blood was necessary to atone for their sin. And of course, we must recognize that the shed blood of whether it's the bull or the uh, the sheep or the lamb, the shed blood of the animal cannot cleanse sin. But that was the institution that God had established for His people. As I said, it ran 1,400 years. And it was sufficient. It was sufficient as a means for God to dwell with His people and His people to dwell with Him. It was sufficient ultimately because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was sufficient under the Old Covenant as a means. And perhaps the most glorious aspect of the Levitical priesthood was that it sketched out in ornamental detail the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Have you ever wondered why there's such detail in Leviticus? With the ephod and the urim and the thummim and the breastplate and the ephod and the scarlet yarn and the robes. Well, there are multiple things going on there, but one of them I think is 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 to show the beauty of holiness, which is not ultimately in the beauty of the robes and the priests. It's the beauty of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And the priests were, were consecrated with the oil. We read about that. And isn't that a picture of our own great high priest Jesus separated from sinners? As God taught His people under the Levitical priesthood that they needed a priest. They needed a a mediator to stand between Him and them and to close the gap between His holiness, His blazing holiness and our disgusting sin. You see, the priest represented the people in the presence of God. They atoned for their own sins. They atoned for the sins of the people. And they, they, they represented the people in the presence of God. You see, it was about access to God, fellowship with God. Being accepted by God. God. 
having communion with God. And the work of the priesthood was laid by God upon the tribe of Levi. Those descending from Levi and only those descending from Levi could, in the words of verse 13 of our our text, could serve at the altar. We read about the altar earlier in Leviticus 8. It was a privilege. It was a privilege that God had given to one tribe, the Levites. Friends, with nearly 1,400 years of priestly service, uh, having unfolded and, and, and having been sustained by the, up to the point that our writer in Hebrews is writing 1,400 years. That's a long history. But it's come to an end. As good and as glorious, we might say, as it was. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses wasn't inglorious. But the coming of Jesus Christ marks the glorious fulfillment of all that had been instituted. under the Old Covenant. The Levitical priests, says our writer here, are no longer the means by which sinful men may enter the presence of a holy God. They were sufficient to represent men under the Old Covenant. But their time is up. In fact, we see in verse 19 that Their priestly service is now useless. And it was never perfect. Verse 19. And it's now become obsolete. The Levitical priesthood is no more. And friends, that is a good thing. Because it always lacked completeness. It always lacked perfection. Don't we want completeness? Don't we want perfection? Verse 19, but on the other hand, says the writer, a better hope is introduced. Oh, make way for that better hope through which we draw near to God. What is the better hope? It is a new priestly order. God's not done altogether with priests 
or with the idea of priesthood, I should probably put it that way. A new priestly order with a new priest is the better hope, descended not from Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. And unlike the Levitical priesthood, says the writer, this new priesthood is marked by perfection. And it truly and surely does enable sinners to draw near to God. So the passing away of the Levitical, the Levitical order. Secondly, we see the promise of God the Father to God the Son. It's the second pillar, the second leg of the chair. We Read in verses 20 and 21, it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, that is the new high priest, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Jesus, the great high priest, holds his priesthood not on the basis of physical descent from Levi, but on the basis of his own inherent worth and the divine appointment of God and the solemn oath of God. Could a call to the priesthood be any more established and firm than that. This is a direct quote from Psalm 110 that the writer uh, repeats here. We're going to sing that after. Why is the promissory, promissory nature of Jesus' priesthood so important? I want to suggest very briefly three reasons. First, it establishes the oath, that is, the oath, the solemn oath of God the Father to God the Son, establishes beyond all doubt, beyond all doubt, that the old Levitical order was never meant to be anything other than a temporary fading institution. Second, if we, as sinners, desiring to enter the presence and fellowship of a holy God, if we are going to rely on the mediation of a priest, as God says we must, then we better be sure that we are relying on the mediation of the priest that God himself has appointed. You might say, oh, that's obvious, but not necessarily. Some people are relying on their parents' faith for acceptance in God's sight. Some people are relying on saints. Many people are relying on themselves. But God says, you need a priest. 
You need a priest. You better be relying on the priest that God has installed to bring us into his presence. Well, thirdly, the father's promise to the son. I would say this is a promise the Lord said to my Lord. This is a promise directly to the son. God the father to God the son. I think we can extend that and say that it's a promise not only to God the Son, but also to those who are in God the Son. You can make this your promise. I can make this my promise if I am in Jesus Christ. This promise to the Son guarantees, guarantees, that this priesthood established by God in Jesus Christ will be established forever. We thought 1,400 years was long. When we think of Levi, well, forever is a lot longer. Now, the writer has already spoken of the significance of the divine oath in chapter 6. Perhaps I'll just let him speak for us here. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his prom- of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it, how? With an oath. With an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God cannot lie. So for God to, as it were, take the extra step and say, I swear solemnly by an oath. He wants us to know that his purpose is unchangeable. God's purpose in Jesus Christ is unchangeable. Unchangeable. And friends, just think for a a moment about how desperate we are in, in this world, even just these past two years, for a word that we can count on. Haven't we been surrounded by Lies, misinformation, deception, uncertainty, broken treaties, broken promises. Allow God with his solemn oath here and the truth that is grounded in that solid oath 
to comfort your heart. What God purposes to do in Jesus Christ, you can count on. I'm reminded of a story I heard not too long ago about the late uh, American President John F. Kennedy. During the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States was in the midst of uh, ramping up their response to the Cuban or Rus- Russian-Cuban threat. And at the time, the U.S. was uh, led by President Kennedy. Uh, the U.S. needed to convince its allies in the world that the, the threat that they were perceiving was indeed genuine and real. The U.S. had secret satellite images of what was happening in Cuba. They were very top secret. And so President Kennedy sent his, his best and his brightest and his top emissaries over the globe to the U.S.'s various allies. And at the time, I've heard perhaps uh, the word that's, that I've heard used is prickly. The most prickly ally at the time was France. France was under Charles de Gaulle. And when Kennedy's uh, ambassador or emissary showed up in, in de Gaulle's office and said, President Kennedy has authorized me to show you these classified, top-secret uh, satellite photos of what's going on in, in Cuba. And as the emissary went to take the photos out of the classified envelope, de Gaulle put his hand up and he said, no, no. President Kennedy says it. I believe it. I believe it. You see, the credibility of even a a sinful man goes a long way. Friends, if God says it, we can count on it. And we see in the third place the permanence of Jesus' priestly servants. The permanence of Jesus' priestly service. We read in verses 23 and 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, that is, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Can you do the math? 1,400 years of generations of Levitical priests. How many is that? That's a lot. Serving and dying. Serving and dying. Serving and dying. Sacrificing and dying. Sacrificing and dying. Priest after priest after priest after priest. It's a major defect of the Levitical priesthood when seen in relation to the order of Melchizedek. Priests kept dying. They had to be replaced one after the other. But Jesus is an ever-living priest, says the writer. 
What does that mean for us? Well, he tells us in 20, verse 25, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost or completely. Reading from the, the English Standard Version. I'm sorry I didn't mention that at the beginning. But the writer's not done. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, he's still not done. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, what does that mean? Well, we intercede often in life. We come between two parties. Sometimes they're alienated from one another. Other times it's just to, um, to mediate or to help. Sometimes we intercede on behalf of the saints in prayer. Prayer of, of intercession. Well, Jesus is in heaven as our high priest, constantly interceding for us, representing us in God's presence, praying for us in God's presence, blessing us from on high. You know, friends, I think we can sometimes uh, go astray in our understanding of, of the intercession of Jesus for us. We can realize we're dealing with Almighty God in heaven in His blazing holiness, and we know we are sinners, and we accept we, we must need a priest then to represent us in the presence of God. And, and that's, that's right up to that, but then we go and, and we think that Jesus must be in heaven standing before God the Father, holding Him back, saying, don't destroy them. Is that how you see God the Father ready to destroy you? If not for Jesus holding Him back, well, that's, that's not true. God the Father has given you God the Son to intercede for you. And Jesus is not standing holding God the Father back. He is seated at the right hand of God. Because God the Father has seated him there. Because God accepts his work and his sacrifice. And God accepts you in him. John Murray, and this quote is in the bulletin. I, I think I'll just sum this, this point up by quoting um, two writers. I'll quote John Murray first, speaking of the the intercession of, of the Son seated now on His throne in the presence of God. Murray says, He is a priest now, not to offer sacrifice, but as the permanent, personal embodiment of all the efficacy and virtue that accrued from the sacrifice once offered. So all the efficacy and, and virtue, in Murray's words, that was bound up in that holy, unblemished, perfect sacrifice on Calvary. That sweet-smelling aroma of the holy, sinless Son of God offering Himself 
on the altar of Calvary, that sacrifice and all that it was and all that it represented and all that was bound up in it. Well, God the Father beholds that. All of that. When he looks at his son, seated at his right hand. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you're included in that. Because that sacrifice was for you. John Owen, word of warning here. Is those who try to come to God any other way but by Christ may do well to consider whether that way is able to save them to the uttermost, completely, if at all. Owen goes on, all false religion is but a choice of other things to place our trust in apart from Jesus Christ. permanence of Jesus' mediation, a permanence that enables our great high priest, Jesus, to save us completely to the uttermost. Well, finally, friends, and I'll try to make this as quick as I can, we see in the fourth and final place the perfection of Jesus' person and work. Perhaps of the four pillars or the four legs of the chair, this one is the most important. I say that they're all important. And I say that because without this pillar or this leg, we don't have a chair. We don't have the other legs. Why is that the case? Because everything we've considered up to this point, the passing away of the Levitical order, the, the promise of God the Father to replace that order with, with a new one, the permanence of that new order with its Consequent power to save sinners to the uttermost. This all demands a perfect high priest. No one less. Nothing less will do. This all requires a perfect sacrifice that can permanently, perpetually, and perfectly cleanse the consciences of sinners. Because sin stains our consciences. Do you have a stained conscience today? You can have that cleansed. You can have that cleansed. You come to Jesus Christ. You come to God through Him. He's offered Himself for those who will trust in Him. God demands perfection. And that's why your conscience is stained. That's why my conscience in Adam is stained. 
There's nothing I can do to clean my conscience, no matter how hard I try, no matter how good my life may appear in my own eyes or the eyes of others. God requires perfection. Thought, word, and deed. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Loving Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. God demands perfection. He cannot require less. But friends, God gives us perfection in the gospel. He gives us His perfect Son who offered Himself up as a perfect sacrifice. And because Jesus is perfect, and because his sacrifice is perfect, all me, you, even though we are woefully imperfect, our consciences stained with sin can be cleansed. Because he is perfect. Because he is perfect. His person is perfect. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Everything we are not outside of him. Why does does the writer say exalted above the heavens? I'm not sure. But Calvin might... Uh, have uh, a grasp on what he's saying when when Calvin says that if we are to uh, go into, if we are to come to God, um, we need to have someone in heaven able to bring us there. I'm not getting that. Clearly, I apologize. Well, there's our chair, friends. Held up, supported by four solid, indestructible legs. The passing of the Levitical order, the promise of God the Father, the permanence of the Son's priestly intercession and the perfection of His person and work. Are you resting on that chair today? Oh, what a chair to rest on. What a chair. We'll close very briefly with account from my own life when I had my metaphorical, you heard about the collapsing of my, my physical chair a few number of years ago, but I had my metaphorical chair, so to speak, collapse on me as well. I was not a Christian, but I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of fears. 
I had a lot of insecurities. And I started to try to answer my questions and deal with my fears by looking deep inside myself and, and reading those outside of me and, and, and attempted to build my chair that I could rest on for the rest of my life, a chair that would be sturdy and solid, that people would envy, that people would be impressed by, and I thought I was uh, doing just that. I was going through the buffet line, as it were, picking a little of this, a little of that, and making that my religion, sitting on my cozy, comfy chair, thinking that all was well, but one night... I was struck with a fear that I had never experienced and haven't, I don't think, experienced it since. Why was I struck with fear? Because I believed that I was losing my soul. And I knew that there was nothing in all of my so-called religion that could save me. My chair collapsed that night. But God gave me a new chair the next day. And I've been sitting on that chair ever since. And I pray to God that no one leaves here today still sitting on a chair that's going to collapse. There is no person like the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no gospel like the gospel of the Son of God. Believe in Him. Come to Him. Love him, serve him, enjoy him.